Hey everyone, Kevin Morris here. Welcome to episode number 75 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast and a brand new edition of Teaching Thursdays. This is a new edition not only because we're going to be starting a new series in Teaching Thursdays, but also because this is the first time Teaching Thursdays is going to be not only an audio format, which is the normal thing that we do on this podcast, but also video format. And uh, those of you who are watching this on YouTube, obviously you already know this, but those of you who like to listen to this show um, on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen, uh, you should know that you can now find this on the Better Bible Reading YouTube channel. I'm very excited about this, and I do want to ask that you would bear with me, because doing this video thing is, uh, well, it's new for me, so I'm still figuring a lot of things out. I want to get it to... Um, something much more than what I can offer it as uh, right now, uh, but uh, I'm I'm still excited that I get to do this in a video format. So I want to introduce to you our brand new series on Teaching Thursdays, which is the Gospel according to the Old Testament. If uh, you've been a longtime listener, you'll know that we spent a, a long time looking at Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism. That name of that series was Covenant Theology in a Dispensational Culture. That study was all about Bible interpretation. It was about how people follow through their interpretive methods and what kind of conclusions, what kind of solutions, and even what kind of problems come with that. Uh, That study was, you could say, polemic in uh, the way that it was presented, and that's because um, I'm a Presbyterian by conviction, and part of Presbyterian theology is what's known as covenant theology. So that was a study uh, from somebody who uh, embraces covenant theology as what I believe to be biblically accurate, and we were interacting with the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. So hopefully you enjoyed that series. Uh, If you weren't able to listen to that, you can certainly go to betterbiblereading.com. You can find it there. But this one is going to be different uh, for several reasons. The first of which is because it's not going to be interacting with opposing methods per se of Bible interpretation. Instead, what we're going to do is do, you you could say, a thematic survey of the Bible. We're going to be looking at many different aspects of the Bible, but of course, in the title of this uh, series is that the gospel is present and centralized even in the Old Testament. So that means, obviously, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament, but we're going to be following the flow of redemptive history And what the Bible says in the Old Testament, and ultimately how that's fulfilled, how that's heightened, how that's clarified in the New Testament. So I want to give you a flavor of how we're following through in this course, or this teaching series, and probably the best place for us to go to kind of start, to kind of get a good starting point here is by looking at Luke 24. And in Luke 24, you have a fascinating story, because Jesus has just been crucified, he's just been 
raised from the dead, and the disciples are really, they're heartbroken. They're, they're hopeless. They don't really know what to make of this. They don't know what kind of impact this is going to have for them and the Roman Empire as a whole of the uh, Jewish community with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, having seen Jesus just be crucified and still not understanding what all that means, they wanted to know, what does that mean for my life now? Should I be on the run? Should I go into hiding? Of course, we know as we read the gospel accounts that they did, at least in some aspects, go into hiding. But some disciples were walking on a road heading towards Emmaus, and we're told it's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, and they were talking about the events that had just happened. And Jesus shows up, they don't recognize him, and there's so many things going on in that whole narrative. But one of the most important things is that Jesus gives them a correction. He says to them, starting in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then verse 27, most important part here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus gave these disciples a Christ-centered interpretive method of the Old Testament. That was a way to describe the Old Testament, one of the ways that the Old Testament was named or identified as Moses and all the prophets. So another way to put that is Jesus basically started in Genesis, worked his way all the way through the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's a fascinating verse. If you spent time with me dealing with covenant theology and dispensationalism, we talked about how there is continuity. There is one thread working itself all the way from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. God has one plan that he's working all the way through redemptive history, and that plan is not subject to change. What that means for us as readers of the Bible is that Christ is not an afterthought or a New Testament concept. To put it another way, what we're told in the Old Testament as a whole is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's an anticipation. Sometimes it's in types, in shadows. Sometimes it's even parabolic. You could look at a lot of the Old Testament narratives, for example, or certain people's lives and see kind of a parable being told. Probably one of the best examples of this is Jonah. Jesus actually pointed to Jonah as the token sign of his being buried and risen from the dead. He says, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth and then be raised from the dead. So that whole concept of the Old Testament being intricately connected to the New Testament is the kind of thing that we want to spend our time looking at in this series. The Gospel According to 
the Old Testament. And I, I subtitled this, Types, Shadows, and the Substance of Christ. And that's because we're going to be looking at types and shadows in the Old Testament and seeing how those things lead us to the substance of Christ in the New Testament. And so we're going to be spending time in many different passages throughout the Old Testament. But for today, our first installment of this new series, we're going to be looking at the gospel in the garden. Of course, when you think about the garden, where do you go? Well, you go to the book of Genesis. So if you do have a Bible handy, uh, you could certainly feel free uh, to find your way to the book of Genesis. Shouldn't be hard, just go to the very beginning of the Bible, and you're there. Now, this is not going to be a full survey of everything that I would love to talk about. We're going to be kind of devoting our time in a very pointed direction towards uh, the various passages that we're looking at. In other words, we're not going to be looking at a passage and then spending time talking about all of the ins and outs of that passage. We're going to be looking at the passages, rather, in a focus of this idea of the gospel being found in the Old Testament. So, that means we're going to skip the magnificent story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and go right to the bad news, go right to where things go horribly wrong, and go right to where sin enters into the world. And we find that in Genesis chapter 3. I want to read for you Genesis 3, 1 through 13. And then we're going to spend some time interacting with what exactly we should make of this in terms of the gospel. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And of course, we could really come at this in a lot of different ways, and we could spend time talking about the reality of sin, talking about the fall of man, 
and all of the various categories that go along with that. But what I want to point out here to you is that in Genesis chapter 3, we have this serpent who, at least in terms of the narrative, kind of shows up out of nowhere. We don't know exactly what to make about this serpent, at least in terms of his identity. But what we do know about this serpent is that he is certainly not uh, in favor with the decrees of God. This is not a serpent who's after helping the human race foster a care and concern for the Word of God and for the obedience of the commands that God gives. Instead, this is a serpent that casts doubt, suspicion, and division in the things that God has commanded, and even in the very character of God. That, is God true in what he says? Does God mean what he says? And all of these various things that the serpent tries to do here. In other words, he's not on the good side, we could say, certainly by way of summary. And the Bible doesn't tell us anything about this serpent prior to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. So, of course, the question is begged, well, who is he? How exactly do we come to an identity of this serpent? Well, we could go to somewhere that is rather explicit about this. It may surprise you that this is all the way in the very last book of the Bible. So we're introduced to the serpent in the first book of the Bible with in some ways, uh, not a whole lot of identification, if any. And to find that identification, at least in explicit form, we go all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Now, Revelation, of course, is full of imagery, uh, full of language that is meant to be symbolic in a lot of places, but certainly not all places. And one of those places where it's explicit and very clear and very literal in a kind of one-to-one correlation is in Revelation chapter 12, where being introduced to this dragon who wages war against the people of God. And listen to what it says in terms of identifying this dragon. Verse 9 of chapter 12 in Revelation, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here you have in the book of Revelation an explicit identification that Satan is the serpent that we find in the book of Genesis. It's called the ancient serpent, which of course is referencing back that idea of ancient, all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the first book of the Bible. The serpent is the one that we find in Genesis chapter 3, and that serpent is no other than Satan himself. Okay, so his goal here is to distort God's word, and of course the aftermath of this sin is truly devastating. We still feel the effects of it today. Even those of us who are Christians still feel the effects of sin, a sinful flesh, a nature that is opposed to God, and we see it playing out here in Genesis 3. Let's pick up where we left off in verse number 14, and I want to highlight a couple things for you. Verse number 14, here's what it says. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So we have there the serpent being cursed. We have the serpent being cursed by God, and this curse is not only found in verse number 14, as we just read, but it's actually followed in the next verses. This is where I want you to really pay careful attention, because this is just a fascinating uh, thing for us to consider. Verse number 15 says this. Now again, remember the Lord is talking to the serpent here. It begins in verse number 14. He addresses the serpent. He's cursing him. He's pronouncing this curse upon the serpent. He's still talking to him. Verse number 15, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that is a fascinating passage, because when you read that, you really got to follow your pronouns. I will put in between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and then it says this, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, how do we understand this passage? Well, I want to present to you that this passage is the gospel in the garden. Genesis 3.15, people have said, uh, theologians throughout church history have identified this as the first pronouncement of the gospel, the proto-euangelion, the first pronouncement of the gospel. And where do we find that pronouncement? Well, we find it here in this victory language. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now again, if we just look at that verse, isolated from the rest of the Bible, it may beg the question, how exactly are we supposed to understand this? We just saw this serpent speaking to Eve. We see Eve and Adam deceived and plunged into a state of sin and misery. And now we have this curse that evidently the woman and her offspring, so presumably all subsequent humans who go on to live after Adam and Eve, all descended from the two of them, are going to be at enmity with this serpent. Some people have kind of sarcastically suggested that this passage is about the fact that humans by nature don't like snakes very much. I happen to be one of those humans that don't like snakes very much in any circumstance. But I don't think that this passage is about the terrible relationship between humans and snakes, because I know there are some of you out there that love snakes and have them as pets. And you should seek help, because I don't see how anybody in their right mind could like a snake. But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying something much more glorious. Now, some people want to stop us dead in our tracks right here and say, you have to interpret this verse all by itself. You can't run to the New Testament 
and read a meaning into this that the author, Moses, if they're a conservative theologian, authors, if they're a liberal theologian and don't believe that this was written by one person, you can't read into something what these authors or author, either way, didn't originally mean. Well, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, I want to encourage you that we certainly can go to the New Testament. Uh, If that's not the case, we've already broken the rule because we just did that to identify who the serpent was. But we can do this, number one, because the New Testament explicitly wants to explain what the Old Testament is saying. The New Testament, as Augustine famously said, the Old Testament is the new concealed, the New Testament is the old revealed. And that really does play into what what we're talking about here in this whole series. But especially in the whole idea of whether you can go to the New Testament to find meaning and clarification in the Old Testament. But the other reason why we should do this, not only because the New Testament does this explicitly, not only in that passage I read in Revelation, but every single prophecy that is explained in the New Testament says this took place to fulfill this. Well, that's reading into the Old Testament a clarifying description of what's being said. Okay, so all that aside, uh, the other reason why we should be able to do this is because the writer, which I believe to be Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis doesn't stop at verse number 15. Now, that may sound like a totally obvious statement that has no significance whatsoever. But the point I'm making is Genesis was not written in isolation, neither was verse number 15. The story continues in verse 16 and the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book of Genesis and then in Exodus and then in Leviticus and on and on and on. The point that I'm making is The Bible, by nature, is progressive in its revelation. Obviously, what goes along with the idea of progressive revelation is deeper and deeper understanding of what was previously said, in this case, Genesis 3.15. Okay, I really want to drive that point home for those of you who are listening, because we do live in an age when theological investigation and biblical interpretation is really up for grabs, or so it would seem, but actually the unorthodox professors, interpreters, and all of that are really scoffing at us, those of us who are reading the Bible as a whole, believing the Bible to be infallible, believing it to be absolutely true, without error, absolute authority, absolute consistency and unity in all that is said. Well, if that's true, what I'm saying and what we maintain in Orthodox Christianity, then there's no rule that we're breaking when we simply say the Bible is progressive in its revelation, progressive in what's being said to us, and therefore we can go to the New Testament, we can go to another book in the Old Testament, 
and find greater clarification and understanding to the meaning of a text that takes place, such as this in Genesis 3.15. That might sound like I'm beating a dead horse here, but this matters so much. If we can't do this, we may as well stop this series altogether. But let me show you how we can find out what this passage is talking about, Genesis 3.15. What is this whole idea between enmity and between bruising the head and bruising the heel? How, how does that all happen? Well, the gospel message is directly connected to the bruising of the serpent's head and the woman's offspring. Here's a couple passages uh, that I want to call your attention to as we bring this first session to a close. Well, Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Very helpful passage here. Hebrews 2, verse number 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This passage tells us that what Jesus is doing in his work, his earthly ministry, his death on the cross, his being buried for three days, his being risen three days later, his ascending into heaven. All of these things Jesus is doing to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that the devil determines who lives and who dies. That, of course, is the Lord himself. But what it does mean is it is the serpent, the devil, Satan himself, who introduced and tempted humanity into a state of spiritual death. God said to Adam that the one who eats of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil will surely die. And Satan comes along, and he challenges that. He says, you won't. Not only will you not, but you'll actually be more like God if you eat of this fruit. That's what he says to Eve. Eve believes what he says. She doesn't believe what God says. She partakes of the fruit. And the news from there is that 10 out of 10 people die. Everyone dies from that point on. No death prior to. So God's word is certainly true. But not only is this an idea of physical death, but it's an idea of spiritual death. And that's what Hebrews is talking about here. Not only does Jesus' victory free us from physical death, because even though we do die physically, we'll be raised from the dead, So it's a temporary thing. It doesn't have the final word. But it's also our spiritual state. It's also the fact that when we are alive in Christ, we are no longer spiritually dead as we were outside of him, as every human being is outside of him. And his work is 
undoing the wrong that was done by Adam and Eve and that was introduced by Satan himself. Here's another verse that is even more explicit to this idea. That's in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this passage really connects all the dots for us in Genesis. Not only are we told that Jesus, again, just like we read in Hebrews 2, that Jesus is destroying these works of the devil. He's undoing the wrong the devil perpetrated to the human race. But he's also making a familial distinction. That is, there's a distinction of families here happening in First John. And where do we see that idea of a family distinction? Well, we saw it in no other than Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, remember he's talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring, that is the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. He, evidently somebody from the woman's offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, Genesis 3 Verse 15 is the reality of a clash of two families, two utterly distinct families clashing together, the family of the serpent and the family of the woman, i.e. the family of God. And it is one from that family who will rise up, destroy the works of the serpent, and crush the head of that serpent. That is who Jesus is. That is the good news in the midst of the darkest chapter in the Bible. We have the most glorious news, good news, gospel given to us. And that news is that the serpent will be destroyed along with all who belong to him. That is, all of those who do not belong to God. And all of those who do belong to God will find victory and even participate in this overthrow and defeat of the serpent and all who belong to him. One will come who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And when that promise is made, Genesis 3.15, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament is looking for the one who is to come. The gospel in the garden is the good news that one will come to right this wrong. And the question that follows 
from Genesis 3.16 all the way to Matthew 1.1 is, is this the one who is to come? Friends, thanks for watching this episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, this new installment of Teaching Thursdays, the Gospel According to the Old Testament. I want to give a special shout out to my supporters over at patreon.com because, especially as I begin to do this video thing, uh, my supporters are the ones that make all of this possible. Very uh, encouraged by the support that uh, I do see, and it continues to grow. And so if you're watching this or listening and uh, you're interested in being a supporter, please consider doing so by heading over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. Have a, a few different tiers that you can choose from uh, to pledge your support. And when you do, each one of them um, offers uh, unique incentives for you as my way of saying thank you for your support. Well, that wraps things up for today. And I will see you on another episode real soon of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. This is Kevin Morse.